Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. This is a recording that I do of a weekly Monday night Bible study every Monday night at 7.30 at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel. If you're interested in joining us live or via Zoom, please email me and let me know. We can get you plugged in, get you the link for that, or just show up in person. We'd love to have you. But without further ado, enjoy this recording of a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks for this day, a new week, a new opportunity to be together, and especially a new opportunity to dive into your word and to invite you to speak to us. And so we invite, Lord, the presence of your Holy Spirit with power, conviction, and anointing to come upon us in this place tonight. Open our hearts and ears to be ready to listen and receive whatever you have in store for each one of us. Pray that our conversation would be filled with the Spirit, that our learning and teaching tonight would be filled with your Spirit, and that we would be challenged to follow you more faithfully and to fall more deeply in love with you in all that we do. Bless us each in the ways we most need it. Remove any distractions, worries, or anxieties from our minds, anything that would draw us away from focusing in on you and your presence tonight. And bless this time as we lay it at your feet. We pray all of this in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome. Uh, we are in Luke chapter 14 tonight, starting in verse 1. And then we're going to jump to verses 7 through 14. This is the gospel reading for this upcoming Sunday, which is the 22nd Sunday in ordinary time. And why are we jumping? Because that's what the church wanted, Greg. That's what they asked for us to jump. Verse 1, the reading really the reading really is verses 7 through 14. We include verse 1 because it provides a context for 7 through 14. That's why we jump around. So, um, as the song says. Uh, we're going to begin first time through. I invite you to um, set aside any other images in your mind, any pictures you have of this passage. This passage only occurs in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, so it is unique to the Gospel of Luke, so it might not be as familiar. But as we read, try and paint this in your mind as if you've never heard it before. Uh, try and engage your senses. See what, if you were in this story, what you would see, smell, taste, hear, feel, um, where you place yourself. Just kind of pay attention to this as it is read our first time through. Luke chapter 14, verse 1, and then jumping to 7. On a Sabbath... Jesus went to dine at the home of one of the leading Pharisees, and the people there were observing him carefully. Verse 7. He told a parable of those who had to those who had been invited. Noticing how they were choosing the places of honor at the table. When you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not recline at table in the place of honor. A more distinguished guest than you may have been invited by him, and the host who invited both of you may approach you and say, Give your place to this man. And then you would proceed with embarrassment to take the lowest place. Rather, when you are invited, go and take the lowest place, so that when the host comes to you, he may say, My friend, 
move up to a higher position. Then you will enjoy the esteem of your companions at the table. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Then he said to the host who invited him, When you hold a lunch or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your wealthy neighbors in case they may invite you back and you have repayment. Rather, when you hold a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Blessed indeed will you be because of their inability to repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So we are continuing in this on the way. Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem. This is just a little bit after, not directly after, but pretty shortly after the passage we read last week, continuing in these different stories, narratives of what Jesus is teaching on his way to Jerusalem. And so as we read this a second time, we're in Luke 14, starting verse 1. This time, pay attention to the words as you see them on the page or as you hear them and try and empty your mind of anything else. See if a particular word or phrase stands out to you, strikes you for any reason, sparks a memory, a thought. Take that as something that the Lord might be saying to you and begin to reflect on that. What is God trying to say to me through this word or this phrase? What is he maybe compelling me to do? How can I listen more deeply uh, to what he is challenging me through this or inviting me into through this particular word or phrase? Okay, so second time through, we are in Luke 14, starting in verse 1 and then jumping to verse 7. On a Sabbath, Jesus went to dine at the home of one of the leading Pharisees, and the people there were observing him carefully. Jesus told a parable to those who had been invited, noticing how they were choosing the places of honor at the table. When you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not recline at table in a place of honor. A more distinguished guest than you may have been invited by him, and the host who invited both of you may approach you and say, give your place up to this man. And then you would proceed with embarrassment to take the lowest place. Rather, when you are invited, go and take the lowest place, so that when the host comes to you, he may say, my friend, Move up to a higher position. Then you will enjoy the esteem of your companions at the table. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Then he said to the host who invited him, When you hold a lunch or dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your wealthy neighbors, in case they may invite you back and you have repayment. Rather, when you hold a banquet, Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Blessed indeed will you be because of their inability to repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you to take a few moments, look back over this passage and the things that stood out to you. Take some time at the tables that you are at. If you'd like to join another table, please feel free uh, and discuss what stood out to you, what questions arose in this passage for you. We'll spend about 10 minutes doing that, and then we'll call it back to a larger, the larger group for discussion, reflection, and any questions that you have. So go ahead and do that.
Any questions about this passage or anything that you want to just share that stood out to you that maybe might resonate with the larger group? Yeah. Who was the leading Pharisee at which Jesus was? We don't know. It wasn't named. Um, so there, there are... Um, there's a hierarchical structure in ancient Judaism. Um, it's much more organized than Judaism today, actually, because Judaism has a lot of sects that have broken off. Um, but this probably would have been someone who was at least a member of the Sanhedrin, which I think there was 70 uh, individuals on. And there were certain like kind of top people, like the high priest. Um, there's another role, they say in the chosen, it's like the, the Bet Amid or something like that. It was like the high judge or something. I'm mispronouncing that terribly um, or misremembering it. But uh, probably would have been someone in the upper echelons of, um, of the Sanhedrin. Because um, the Pharisees, you could say, were kind of like one of the religious parties of the time. And there were several, uh, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and then there were some more fringe parties of the, the Jewish hierarchy, like the Zealots or the Essenes. Um, but Pharisees were dominant in that. They were very legalistic, and so it probably would have been someone who was pretty high up on that that legal council, which was the Sanhedrin. So we don't know who. Yeah. I think if it was Caiaphas or Annas, they would have named him. Bruce. Says the people there were observing him carefully. Those of us that have been around for a while learning about the Lord we think we kind of know him, mm -hmm. or, you know, know a lot of what he did, what he's capable of. These people are still trying to figure him out. He's a brand new thing in, in their world. Yeah. And they're checking him out pretty close. So, uh, and, and it also is curious to me that he's dining with Pharisees that later are trying to kill him. Mm -hmm. So this is early on in their relationship. Yeah. And this is the third... I believe in the Gospel of Luke, the third time Jesus dines with a Pharisee. So he's been doing this. The first time is in chapter 7, and it's the instance where the woman with the oil pours the oil on his feet, and they criticize her for wasting this oil, and he praises her. And the second time is in Luke chapter 11, when uh, the Pharisees criticize him for not observing the traditions of the elders, the washing of hands at the meals that was only something prescribed for priests but that the Pharisees had been imposing on everyone, and he criticizes them for that as well. So these past two times have not gone so well. There's been some heated discussion. Uh, if you want to know how Jesus feels about Pharisees, go read Matthew chapter 23, and it's, you know, you're going to see, you're going to see righteous, angry Jesus, you know, all on full display in Matthew 23. So, uh, but we see what laid the groundwork for a lot of that. You know, Jesus is open to the interaction, right? He's willing to sit down at table with anyone, as is the love of the Lord for all of us. No matter what we've done, God is always willing to meet us at the table, always willing to invite us to himself. But once we are there in that intimacy of table fellowship, I mean, it's a very, um, a very, there's no other word, but intimate environment, especially at that time in Jewish culture. Like, you don't just do that with anybody, but Jesus did. And that's why he gets criticized left and right for doing this. And so once you're there, you have that intimacy of relationship, then you are kind of judged according to that relationship. Then that, that kind of openness and building of trust can be like, hey, I have to be honest with you. Just like the people who really love us sometimes have to do that, you know? Yeah, Rick. Thanks for like kind of outlining those different times. I'm guessing by the third time, I know by the third time I'm 
spending any amount of time with someone who's criticizing me all the time and really don't want to spend time with them. Yeah. So, and then you mentioned the, the, the last time when he's, you know, basically lashing out at them. So, mm -hmm. um, I was just kind of curious, like, for people that are like that in our lives that are righteous mm -hmm. and, and uh, holier than thou, and we're trying to model Jesus, right? So I guess we should be trying to win those people over or at least help or point them out if we're doing it humbly. But then when do we reach the point like Jesus where we say, you know, screw you. Basically. Yeah. So I'm just kind of curious, like, those kind of people, and, and Jesus dealt with those kind of people who eventually killed him. Yeah. So what does that, what does his model say about how we should deal with those kind of people? I think the Jesus model of kind of ministry would say, the door is always open. There's always a seat at the table. But once you are at the table, you have to be ready for the truth. You know, the truth given in love. You know, Jesus never lashes out in anger just for no reason. You know, it's usually a response to something that was supposed to be something that was being done in love. You know, some, something that has already been set forth or some truth that they already should have known. Um, and so for us, I think a willingness to have an openness to encounter God in anybody, a willingness to have that conversation with anybody, and even to have it multiple times if needed, even if the experience is negative. Um, you know, this isn't, this is the last time I believe in Luke where he sits down for dinner with the Pharisees, but it's not his last interaction with them. Uh, and even when he does interact with them, even when they are condemning him and beating him on the night that he's betrayed, he still takes it in silence, you know? So I think the, the ability to never write someone off, to always leave that opportunity there, but also to recognize, like, if we're really loving this person, we need to speak truth to them. And if you're facing someone who's just unwilling to take criticism, unwilling to change, uh, is always responding in anger, then, you know, you, you've, you've done your best to reach out to them. You, you can use the instructions in Matthew 18, for example, like if your brother wrongs, you go to him in secret and try and, you know, deal with it together. And if that doesn't work, take two or three more. And if that doesn't work, take him to the church. There's this kind of rule of three. It was the same thing with forgiveness. If someone, uh, if you were trying to um, ask for someone's forgiveness, if you had wronged them, uh, in, in the rabbinical literature, you would go and ask their forgiveness. One time, maybe they didn't accept it. Two times, maybe they didn't forgive you. On the third time, if they still don't forgive you, the rabbinical teaching was, now the unforgiveness lies with them and you are free of that. So this kind of rule of three was very, very like um, permeating all of these different teachings of the rabbis and the practices of Jesus. So not that we have to stick to that, you know, like, all right, three times and then you're out. Three strikes and you're gone. You get three chances. But um, Jesus is always willing I think, to have that door open and have the conversation. But he's also not willing to let any opportunity be wasted to share the truth with love with people who need to hear it. Yeah. George, you I was just wondering how, how, it, how it happened that Jesus is invited to the Pharisee's house for dinner. How, mm -hmm. how would that have happened? Uh, there's a lot of places in Scripture where there's little clues that his interactions with the Pharisees, they want to observe him and to trap him or to discover who this person is. Some of them have more of a curiosity. Nicodemus, who comes to him at night in John chapter 3. You know, yes, it's under the cover of darkness. He doesn't want anyone to see. But he has this sort of curiosity. Some of it is more, um, what's the word, insidious. 
because they want to embarrass him publicly or shame him or catch him in some kind of heresy or violation of the law. So they are trying to trap him in some kind of, you know, like in uh, Luke 11, when they're like, why aren't you observing the purification washing and things like that? And then he criticizes them. So I, I think because it says here that they were observing him carefully, I think it shows you for potentially some of the people there, there was more of a nefarious intention. You know, it wasn't like they were listening to him attentively. They were watching him. They wanted to see what he did so the moment they could just catch him, you know. And and this is true of all of us, I think. You know, when when we have things the way that they are, we like things the way they are. Maybe this is in a workplace or in a friendship or in your family. And all of a sudden, you know, um, your friend has a new significant other. Or there's a new hotshot in the workplace. Or, you know, there's someone sitting in your pew at mass. I don't know what the situation is. But there's all of a sudden a disruption. And here's this new person. And immediately R is like, okay, our, our response is like, all right, we got to figure this person out, like, because there's probably something wrong with them, right? Especially like, you know, like you have a best friend group and someone gets a boyfriend or a girlfriend, you're like, all right, let's see, we'll see if they pass the test. You know, it's always this like distrust initially, whereas Jesus does the opposite, right? He always opens with this ability to invite people into a trusting relationship, and only when he sees an issue does he then speak. We do the opposite because. We tend to see sin and mistakes and negativity everywhere, and we just assume that something's wrong. And so there's a difference there as well, back to Rick's point, too. Uh, yeah, Matt? Yeah, I just wanted to bring something up that I remember having a conversation with Daniel like a while ago, just about and she talks about how Jesus like he died the most humble death. Like he like if you look at it, like he didn't have like the, the final word, it seems like in that mm -hmm. his naysayers have the final word about him dying on the cross. So um, Mother Teresa has like a list of like 15 ways to be humble. And it really shows that like you kind of have to die to your pride and you really like have to let people not step over you, but just understand your confidence and truth. Yeah. And just let people have like their small wins when you like, you know, have the greater wins just like knowing the truth. Yeah. So I just wanted to read them for you all. Please. Versus speak as little as possible about yourself. Second is keep busy with your own affairs and not those of others. Three, avoid curiosity. Four, do not interfere in the affair of others. Five, accept small irritations with good humor. Six, do not dwell on the faults of others. Seven, accept censures even if unmerited. Eight, give in to the will of others. Nine, accept insults and injuries. Ten, accept contempt being forgotten and disregarded. 11, be courteous and delicate even when provoked by someone. 12, do not seek to be admired and loved. 13, do not protect yourself behind your own dignity. 14, give in in discussions even when you're right. 15, choose always the more difficult task. Mm -hmm. So it seems like like a lot of these, like you just think about just everyday discussions like you network, like you know, you think you have the right you, the right words to say, but like sometimes it might just be better just to back off. Yeah. So those are 15 things from Mother Teresa on how to be humble. Yeah. Great. Awesome. In case anyone couldn't hear it, you can look it up. Um, but yeah, I mean, it speaks right to that verse. It's repeated later in Luke 18. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That's kind of the crux verse of this whole passage. You know, people seeking their own pride, their own edification, their own acknowledgement, achievement, seat of honor, whatever it might be. Um, and we all have that desire. Father Robert Spitzer, he talks about the different levels of happiness. And the first level is instant gratification. And we're very good at that, right? You know, you can 
hit a, an app on your phone and you don't even have to interact with another person to get everything that you want delivered right to your doorstep. Um, but the second level is he calls ego comparative happiness, which is all about achievement. This idea that I'm doing better than this person or I'm achieving this and someone else didn't get that. And we can turn to those things for fulfillment and happiness. And the problem is, he says, that most people never leave levels one and two their entire life. And that's true in our culture, right? And, and even in Christianity. In, in uh, America, we have this idea, in especially non-denominational Christianity or Protestant in the Protestant world, this idea of the health and wealth gospel. You know, if you just believe in Jesus, everything good will happen. You know, you'll be rich, you'll be wealthy, you'll be healthy if you just follow Jesus. We can call it the gospel of upward mobility. If you just do what's right in the eyes of the Lord, all of a sudden everything in your life will be figured out and you'll get exactly what you want. Like Jesus is Santa Claus and you have to be a good little boy or girl and he'll make his list and check it twice. If you do everything right, no lump of coal, but everything you've ever wanted in the stocking of your life. And that is not what the gospel says about what it means to be a disciple. It's not what the gospel says about what to expect when you follow Jesus. And yet, that can be the very tempting form of happiness. So the other two levels of happiness, he says, are, are contributory, where we are being generous, we're giving to others, and then transcendent, which is, comes from our relationship with God. And if we can ascend away from those levels of instant gratification in ego-comparative happiness, meaning we're willing to maybe fast or say no to certain things, to wait for things that are better, and we maybe get off social media or we stop comparing ourselves to other people. We stop thinking of our life as a highlight reel, but as an opportunity to give and to sacrifice. Then all of a sudden, happiness levels skyrocket. But everything in our culture programs us to see things differently, see things on those first two levels. You know, what can you get that's the most comfortable, most enjoyable, the fastest and the cheapest? And how can you look better than everybody else? That's what our whole world, there's whole industries devoted to that. Um, and so we can very easily get trapped in that, even in a Christian mindset or a Christian worldview. Yes. Um, so I just had like this thought, um, like going back to like um, the prior like reading how we were talking about, you know, striving to um, like enter into like the narrow gates to enter like the kingdom of God. Right? Mm -hmm. like, we're supposed to have like a strong discipline to get there, and then now we're like essentially like there at the wedding. Right, mm -hmm. and it's like okay, like great, like you should be like exalting, right, like having praise that you made it through. But then he's saying like, oh, like be careful, like just because like you're here doesn't mean that like you're high worthy. Mm -hmm. You know, you still have like, I guess you're like right place. Yeah. Um, but like, like what does it mean by like? There's like a low place and like a high place, like, um, I guess like in heaven or like at the um, like wedding. Well, I think this is less in, in a symbol for heaven and more about just the dynamic of table fellowship at the time. Because, you know, if you have a long table, the host usually sits at the end. So the seats of honor are the ones right next to the host, you know, on that far end. And then the further you go are the lower seats, you know, which it makes me think about like this dynamic, you know, at the time of like sending out invites as like someone hosting a party. And, you know, you're like, oh, I'm going to put this person here because, you know, they're going to, you know, like just, I can just sense this very like nefarious kind of very mean spirited nature behind something that should be very intimate, positive table fellowship. And that these people who are like welled up in pride, they just like, it's this whole opportunity to just like passive aggressively cut at each other, you know, just based on table positions. And Jesus, it's so, so apparent to Jesus that it's the first thing he mentions, right? Like, when he looks around and he sees what's going on, this is the thing that he wants to address. Because it's just permeating everything that they care about. 
you know? And again, if you go to Matthew 23, it's all about how they widen their phylacteries and how they, uh, you know, expand their tassels and they enjoy places of honor and seats in the synagogue and they like people bowing at them in the streets, you know, all of this look at me, look at me, look at me type of mentality, feeling very self-important. And humility is, it's kind of the antithesis of pride. You know, pride is the chief of all sins. Uh, pride says, I know best, whereas humility says, God knows best. And humility really best modeled, I think, um, you know, in, in the story of someone like St. Paul. You know, uh, his, his Hebrew name is Saul. Saul, the name of one of the former Hebrew kings. He was trained by one of the most um, honorable Pharisees, Gamaliel, of that time. He was very studious, very well-respected, very high up, very educated. And then he has this encounter with God, and he's knocked to the ground, and he begins going by his Greek name, Paul. God doesn't change his name, but he, people have multiple names. He starts going by his Greek name so he can go minister to the Gentiles. But the name Paul means in Greek ground, and it comes from the same word as humility. Humility comes from the word humus, which also means ground. And it's this idea of like being low, being grounded, not being up in the clouds, not being puffed up, but being down in the dirt. And how interesting that, where is it in Genesis 2 that we came from but the dirt? Right? That's where we belong, is down. God breathed life into us. Not that we should be self-deprecating. You know, they say that humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. And humility, proper humility, is really recognizing who am I in the eyes of God, and how do I live fully into that. So it's not about like, oh no, don't pay attention to me. Uh, if someone says, oh, you did a really good job on it. No, 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 I'm terrible, thank you. Oh, glory to God, I'm so bad. You know, like that's not how we're supposed to respond. But if we know our gifts and we know what God has called us to, we can glorify him by using them. Because we know it's only because of him that we are good at this thing. Or only because of him that we've achieved this. Or only because of him that certain things are going right in our lives. And that is a properly ordered identity of what it means to be humble. It's exactly what is echoed in that, that early Christian hymn in Philippians chapter 2. Where it says, have among yourselves the same attitude that is also yours in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, rather, he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, coming in human likeness, and found human in appearance. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And as Christians, we are meant to be little Christ. We are meant to mimic and model Jesus. And no one models humility better than him. You know, he always took the lowest place. He went and dined with those who were considered the lowest, the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the oppressed, the lepers, those who are marginalized and cast out. That's who he goes and seeks. But he doesn't forget the Pharisees either. He gives them that same opportunity. But how hard it is for those who are esteemed, those who think they're hot stuff, those who think they've got it all figured out, kind of as Bruce was alluding to before, sometimes we can think we've got it all together because we've been around for a while, we've been in the church for a while, we've heard a lot of good talks, we've been to a lot of Bible studies, we think we've got this together. And I wonder what category I would be in if Jesus came and sat at a table with me, if I would be more tempted to act like a Pharisee to this person I may not recognize, or recognize the gift it is that he's coming to me in my brokenness, like a tax collector or a prostitute or whoever. And that's a, a good point of reflection for us on this reading this week. Ian, did you have something back there? Uh, no, you actually, it was a question that you asked. Super. But anything to follow up on it would be, um, uh, 
humility in the way that it's kind of looked at. Mm -hmm. When I remember growing up in Catholic church and going to Catholic school, it was kind of always more taught in this like, you know, oh, being self-deprecating, oh, no, mm -hmm. this is, you know, I'm okay, I'm okay, this and that. But why do you think it, why do you think so many people get it so wrong? And how do you think like, that can be fixed? Like this true sense of humility being accomplished, but always according to God's will, because Right, you have to be humble, yeah. humble mostly, and always too God. Yeah. So, anyway, any, any comments you have on like why some people get that wrong? I think we're just really bad at it. We're too suck at it. You know, we like it's the first sin, right? The first sin, the sin that permeated the continuation of original sin in the human heart was I know best. You know, and we think that all the time, whether we directly say it to God consciously or not, we tell Him our plans. We say, God, I would love for you to give me this thing exactly in this way. Or if we don't think he's doing it that way, then we suddenly like distrust. Like, God, do you really know what you're doing up there? Like, why do I feel so, why do you feel so far away from me? And God's like, I'm trying to bless you over here. Like, will you just like get it together? Like, you don't need that. But we're continually trying to hold on to our idea, hold on to the reins, be in control, and that's all temptation to pride. I know best. That's exactly what Adam and Eve did. Did he really tell you that if you ate of this fruit, you would die? No, you won't die. Did he really say that? And how many times are we tempted? God, are you really there? Are you really going to bless me? Can I really trust you? Is something good really going to come out of this? Are you really going to take this away from me? That's why it's so hard. Because it's just ingrained into the human experience. From original sin down to today, to be autonomous, to desire to be autonomous, independent. And, you know, our society doesn't help that. In fact, it praises those qualities. And that's the antithesis of what we need to be in right relationship with God. So that's why it's so hard. You know, that's why people who are often in more third-world-oriented countries, people who are homeless, who have so much less, who aren't caught up in this rat race of upward mobility, who don't care about all of that cultural comparison, why they seem so much happier and so much more connected to God. Because they're not ingrained in this kind of pride-oriented, pride-centered culture 24-7. Not that they don't have their issues, but I think it just makes it an easier environment. Yeah, Matt? I just think in general, like, society, like, sees, I guess, I want to use the word manhood in just, like, a very different sense than how Jesus would be like. For example, like, it seems like a lot of times, like, to be strong is to be closed off to, like, not, you know, basically vulnerable like how you're feeling which is basically like how you are as a person mm -hmm. you look at jesus like he was the most vulnerable person like he basically like poured his heart out he basically like served his heart out on a platter mm -hmm. and like that's a very scary thing but if you think about it it's like for people that are able to do that they're probably the most strong people because they can take the pain the suffering of other people that you know will basically take that part and take advantage of that but if you think about it it's like if your heart like the strong, like if you're the strong person, or like if you're strong like Jesus, like you're able to take that. And I think that's like, I, I see that in humility kind of come hand in hand because it's like vulnerability, humility. It's just like being open to, I guess, like the ill will of other people, just being able to take it. Yeah. Yeah, because if you're not willing to be open or vulnerable, then you've bought into this lie like, I have everything I need unto myself, I'm complete. Which, again, is pride. It's this idea, I don't need anyone else. That's the opposite of what the Catechism says. Faith is not an isolated act. No one can have faith alone. 
No one. And so if we think we're going to like get through this just by our own estimation, our own achievements, figuring it out all by ourselves, and not finally getting to that point where we break down and say, Lord, I submit to your will. You know, have you ever prayed the litany of humility? Anyone familiar with that prayer? Okay, you should look it up if you've never prayed it. It will ruin your life. <laughs> but that's, that's really, when you are thinking about being humble and wanting to be a disciple of Jesus, that's really what we need to honestly ask him. Jesus, ruin my life so that it is no longer mine and it is yours. You know, think about a structure that was built with, um, like, improper material, very sensitive, brittle material. You know, sometimes in order to rebuild a stronger structure, you need to tear the whole thing down. And that's really what the litany of humility invites, that others may be more esteemed than I. Lord, grant me the grace to desire it, things like that. That I may be forgotten and others be praised. Lord, grant me the grace to desire it. You know, it's very, very difficult. And every time you pray it, like that prayer, that the litany of humility and the litany of trust, if you've ever encountered those two litanies, they both, like every day you pray them, there's one line at least that's just like, ooh, that is, I don't even want to say that today. But like, it's just, it's just that convicting. It's that convicting. Um, and I, I can't tell you how many times, you know, I talk to a lot of other like Catholic speakers or musicians that are out there who are, you know, even more like famous and noteworthy. And they'll talk about how they pray the litany of humility before they go out on stage for like a big event or something because they don't want to get puffed up. And sure enough, when they pray it, they like play terribly. Like it's just like they do a terrible job. Like, and they recognize like, good, like it's not about me. You know, because they're thinking about all the things that went wrong and nobody else sees that. Like the Holy Spirit used them, but it really got them to recognize like this isn't about me being famous or getting these accolades or people, you know, paying attention to me. Um, it's just something that's so consistent anytime it's prayed. It's just like, all right. So don't, you know, don't pray it half-heartedly. I'm warning you. It should come with a warning label. Yeah. Um, so if it doesn't, I'm warning you. But you should still pray. It's, it's complicated. <laughs> Other uh, questions or reflections on this passage? God bless you. Bruce. There seems to be a tit-for-tat mentality here for holding on to your wealth. Mm -hmm. So I get invited to dinner. I don't have to buy a dinner that night. Mm -hmm. I hold on to my wealth. Now, when I throw a dinner, I make sure I invite a wealthy person so they'll invite me and I can hang on to my wealth. Mm -hmm. So it's very centered on earthly wealth. Given back and forth, everybody kind of breaking even, but not building wealth in heaven. Mm -hmm. And Jesus says, uh, you better take a look at the other way to do it. Help the poor, and the blind, and the lame, yeah. and build up a bank account upstairs because you're going to need it. Yeah. And uh, th that's hard for us in this material world. We're wealth-oriented. Yeah. Got to have more. Got to hang on to what I have. Got to at least break even. Yeah. There's a story of a woman who was um, very wealthy and loved things of all sorts of luxury in life, and she dies, and she goes to heaven, and she's walking around with Jesus in heaven. She sees all these mansions, beautiful mansions, in the middle of the city. She's like, oh, this would be really nice. This would be good. And Jesus keeps walking her past these mansions, and all of a sudden, they get out of the center of this town, and they get further and further. And the further they get away from the center of town, the more humble and simple the structures become. And all the way at the end of the street is this tiny little hut 
And he says, uh, this is where you are. Uh, you're going to stay. Welcome. She says, I can't live here. And he says, I'm sorry. This is all we could build with the materials you sent up. Wow. That's, a That's a good one. Yeah. So it's about, are we treasuring the things of earth, building up wealth, as Bruce said, on earth, or building up treasure in heaven? Not so that we can, you know, like, all right, I'm just delaying my brownie points till later, because that we can fall into that same trap of achievement that way. But it's about the mentality. You know, why do we give? Do we give out of a sense of duty or obligation? I guess that's okay, but it's not really the heart of giving. Do we give out of a sense of self-interest? I want to give so that others might give back. Do we give out of, out of a sense of superiority? I want to give so I have, I have one over on them. I can call in a favor later. So I can come back and say, and ask, you know, I want to donate this much money to the church so later on when I want something my way, I can come and ask and threaten to withhold what I've been giving, which has been known to happen. Or do I give because I cannot help but give? That is Christ-like generosity. That is Christ-like detachment from earthly wealth and possessions. The other things are steps along the way. We might start giving for very selfish, self-interested, superiority-oriented reasons. But I think the real question is, are we doing this out of a sense of duty or obligation or because I cannot help but give? I cannot help but give. That's why in Matthew 25, we have the corporal works of mercy, right? Give, to, give food to the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, etc. There are seven. And the church, in its wisdom, added the seventh one. The seventh one wasn't there originally. And they added it because it's the only one that cannot be repaid. Anyone know what it is? Burying the dead. The dead can't give back. They cannot repay you. That's why in the book of Tobit, Tobit is seen as such a righteous man because all of these Jewish people who are being carted off and thrown off into the fields by those in, in the Babylonians, he goes out and he becomes ritually impure by touching the dead and he buries them. And he spends the night outside of the city, outside of his home, so he can purify himself, so he can continue to follow the law. No one can thank him. In fact, he gets in trouble for doing it multiple times. Is that the way that we give? Is that the way that we see these different things? You know, hosting a party, things like that. You know, the cripple, the blind, the lame, the poor, these groups of people that Jesus mentions. He mentions them again in verse 21 when he has the parable of the great feast, more oriented, to your point, Ellie, of, of the, the heaven-oriented type of wedding feast, going out and inviting all people. And those who were invited didn't come. They didn't respond. He's criticizing the Pharisees. You were the chosen people. You were the leaders, but you didn't respond. And so go out in the streets and invite everyone. But then they're still held to a standard of needing a wedding garment, needing to respond to the invitation that they've been given. All of us are required to have that sense of humility. And that comes from not being welled up in pride, not giving to see what we can get, but giving because we cannot help it. Giving like it hurts. Really sacrificing in order that other people might have what they need. Yeah, Nick. Uh, something you said reminded me of uh, Romans uh, 9.3. Uh, when Paul says, For I could wish that I myself were a curse and separated from Christ, from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kin, according to the flesh. Like, what are your thoughts on that? Because that is like, I know Paul's speaking to that extreme level of humility, but to be separated from Christ. You know, like, is that, he's playing into that, or is he speaking to that? I'm not sure I remember the context of that verse, but I think he's talking about 
his brother Jewish brothers and sisters who are Jewish who have turned away and he's wishing that like he would give up everything he knows just so that other people his brothers and sisters would know the truth like he's saying like I'd be willing Lord to like to spend eternity away from you just so that other people might know you and that really is it models this idea of humility the sacrificial giving like even if even if it brings me nothing even if it's to my detriment I want others to know you. I want others to have what they need. Not just their physical needs, but their spiritual needs as well. Craig? I'm on Sometimes when we read the gospel, it's very simple, but it's profound. So the visualization, the visualization of this, I, I visualize like a very long oblong table mm-hmm. with a white tablecloth and maybe Jesus and the, and the, the, the host is at one end. And like they're saying about these people squabbling, you know, and then you, the, just the, the sense of like someone being towards the bottom end. Like people, they all know they're at the bottom end. You know? Yeah. I mean, you know, you're invited to take chair number 14 or whatever. Yeah. But the sense of the host coming over, maybe putting their arm around someone, come up higher, you know? Mm-hmm. It makes me think, like, what about. What about these people who go to the next banquet? Are they all fighting for the lower spot? <laughs> yeah. Kind of a thing, you know? And that's that false sense of humility, right? You know, can you out... Hey, you can get fall into that trap, too, in Christian circles. Who can out-humble the other person? Oh, no, 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 you. Oh, no, you. You're so great. You're so... And that's, that's not humility. You know, it's not. It's about recognizing who you are in the image and likeness of God, how he sees you, living completely into that but not puffing yourself up in pride, allowing yourself to be passed over, to listen more than you speak, a lot of those things that Matt was sharing, that list of Mother Teresa. Yeah, Rick? I think in, when you're describing that in the church, I visualize being in the very back, when you're in the very back of the church, you're not in the action, you're not like hearing everything that's going on. And, you know, so maybe it could also mean that's really the only way that you can hear God is when you're, mm. you're detached from the noise of your life and everything that's going on. Yeah. Because, you know, really, if, if you can fall into the same trap of, well, I define being humble as, and it could be self-serving. Yeah. But if, if you know, maybe it's the, you know, you can only really know what God wants if you're hearing him. Mm-hmm. So so maybe being in the back is, is kind of getting away from the noise and, and you know, having a stronger prayer life that's not just a one-way prayer life, but something yeah. where you actually hear and clearly understand what God wants. Yeah, that's a good point. I think part of this, too, Jesus is also reminding them, it's a good reminder for you and I, to be in the Word. Because this teaching that he gives, it actually comes from Proverbs chapter 25, verse 6 and 7. Listen to this. Claim no honor in the king's presence nor occupy the place of superiors. For it is better to be told, come up closer, than to be humbled before the prince. Sound familiar? So in doing this, this isn't Jesus saying something new. This is Jesus saying, hey, you guys know this. You should know this. Like, get it together. You know? And if we are really serious about following the Lord, we can't just expect the right path holiness, discipleship to fall in our laps. We have to make the commitment to study, to know the word, to be in relationship with Jesus daily, to ask him for clarification, for guidance, for discernment, to seek out good counsel, 
from well-minded mentors, friends who have the same goals of sainthood and heaven. That's the way we learn to do this. It's clear that these Pharisees, all they've been concerned about is how great they look and their positions of power and authority and not losing them, but hoarding them over other people, so much so that they've totally forgot some basic premise of the law that they all memorized when they were kids. So Jesus humbly reminds them, hey guys, you should have known this. You know, and this stuff is all over Proverbs, this type of language. It's not anything new to Jesus. Now, sorry, last thing I'll say. Just reminding me in high school, uh, I was like the youngest on my soccer team, and I would always get picked last, like mm-hmm. for like all the things. And, like it was pretty humbling and like the longest time, but then I just remembered the counting. Like I, I forget when this started happening. You start picking me first, mm-hmm. and I know it doesn't have to do much with like you know our spiritual life, but it was like kind of empowering to like you know like being you know last to be picked first. Like I felt like oh, I think that's like the type of I guess I don't want to say feeling, but just like the sense that like you know God's saying like the first the last shall be first, the first shall be last. Because mm-hmm. I don't know, it's way more uplifting to like be you know at the bottom than. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing more difficult or more intolerable than someone who thinks they're way greater than they really are at something. <laughs> There's someone that I know my wife and I know who I went to college with, um, who, you know. Okay. <laughs> you, you know, yeah, you know. Who thought, like, he was just the bee's knees about everything, you know? And it was, it was not true. Like, it was objectively not true from every professor standpoint, and you know, it was just, so it was very difficult to be around him, you know, to just like, I, and you, I feel really bad saying that out loud, but if you experienced what I experienced, you probably wouldn't feel that bad. Like, it's really hard to be around those people who think they are so much greater than they are. And I know I've had moments in my life, too, we all have, where we thought that, you know. Um, you know, they did a study, I think, that said, um, that asked people, uh, had people rate the how they how good they thought they looked, and had other people rate them, and the study came to find that we are all uglier than we think we are. <laughs> that that was like universal. It was like no one is as attractive as they think they are, like across the board. That was what the study found. You know, it's, which I find is just hilarious. You know, and that but it's part of the human condition, right? We just like we put ourselves on this pedestal, and that's exactly what Adam and Eve did. You know, we think we know better. We think we're greater than. Kevin? Yeah, uh, this is maybe an off topic just a little bit, but it's going back to like kind of that hierarchy seating. Mm-hmm. Um, do you happen to know as far as like the Last Supper is like, was there any type of like seating like preferences as far as that goes? Mm-hmm. I, I don't. I mean, I know there's that uh, the scene, I believe, in the Gospel of John where uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved, who's believed to be John, is resting his head on the chest of Jesus. Um, so he's obviously close, you know, but. It's interesting that that scene, you know, obviously the depiction by Leonardo da Vinci was just an artistic representation, but it's interesting that Jesus is in the middle, not on either end, and everyone is on the same side. You know, it's not this kind of divided thing. But in reality, the table in heaven is round. You know, it's one giant round table with, you know, you can imagine the Trinitarian God at the center, equidistant from everyone, giving everyone their, his full attention, his full presence, uh, and no one being higher or lower than anyone else. Um, and that 
it's going to be surprising and difficult for some people. You know, some people who are very self-righteous or think that they deserve more than, they've been through more than, they've worked harder at their faith than others. And, you know, um, yeah, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> when Hopefully we don't get there. <laughs> That's what I imagine purgatory is going to be. It's just going to be airing out all of the spiritual drama. You know, it's just going to be everyone arguing about, like, how great they think they are and then the whole process of realizing, like the study did, we're all just not as good as we think we are. We're all not as spiritually attractive as we thought we were. And then once we do that, we'll get out of purgatory and get to go to heaven. That's Matt's version of purgatory. So we'll see if I'm right. <laughs> uh, that's our time. So as we uh, as we pray through this this week, um, I think some questions to really consider. How are we approaching others? How are we allowing Jesus to approach us through others? Do we have that lens of judgment, or do we approach that with a sense of openness, welcoming, inviting people, even the unexpected or unusual suspects, into moments of intimacy, moments even of table fellowship? You know, Do we give in a way that dictates that we, we give because we, we cannot help it? Giving because... We want to give in such a way that no one can repay us, or we give because of duty or self-interest or superiority. Um, and really asking ourselves the things that we're attached to. You know, we keep coming back to this theme. Things that we're attached to, being willing to let go of the spiritual treasures that we're building up here and really think about the treasures in heaven. The treasures in heaven are not going to be material. I think they'll probably just be souls. Souls of people that our lives were able to touch and get there. And that's why Jesus has this eternal openness to everyone from the tax collector and the sinner all the way up to the Pharisee because he wants everyone there. Um, I saw a meme today that said, you cannot love God and treat people like garbage. Something to that effect. You, know, you cannot love God and treat people like garbage at the same time. Jesus embodies you know, what that looks like to not do that. But we have to really ask ourselves if we have areas of improvement, areas where we need to ask for forgiveness, judgments that we tend to make or jump to about others, and really have that spirit of openness and detachment and allow ourselves to be less puffed up and maybe seek out some real confirming or convicting prayers in the litany of humility or the litany of trust. I would challenge everyone to look up those and see which one uh, you kind of, I don't know, tickles your spiritual fancy, as it were, uh, to pray through this coming week, especially if you've never heard of one. Uh, they're very, very beautiful, powerful prayers. So let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for this time. All of the words that were spoken and shared, how your spirit was moving, we pray, Lord, that each one of us would be able to identify something that you had intended directly for us, something that you were speaking directly to us, to be aware of, to be challenged by, to put into practice this week so that we can come to know you more deeply, come to know your love, how much you rescue us in our brokenness and in our pride, how you never stop chasing after us, but you will respect our free will. And if we want to be puffed up and proud, you will let us die in that state, Lord. So help us recognize that as difficult as it can be in the day in and day out, in the long run, humility reaps far more rewards. So help us to be humble this week in whatever you call us to. We pray all of this in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.